are now set and David, uh, the king to be, well, he finds himself just desperate. Uh, The theme today really is desperation and uh, where do we find God in that? Desperation. Where do we find God uh, in that? I remember it was the 90s, which I know some of us weren't even there for. Uh, I, and I were living in community. I think I was having something like a nervous breakdown, but I'm assured by doctors that no nerves actually break down, so I, I have no idea really what it was, but I just knew I had to get out of there. And um, Cheryl didn't understand uh, because I couldn't explain it to her. But we put all our stuff, I'll call it our junk because that's about what it was by the time it got to Geelong where it landed. All our junk, all our stuff on the back of a semi-trailer and good old Joey lad drove it down the dirt roads and dropped it off for us in Geelong. And we were there, no home, no job, no future. No way. And most of what was on the back of the trailer had been smashed up on the way down. I think it'd be fair to say uh, we had a bit of a sense of desperation. We might return to that later. In this passage today, it's an awful two chapters of scripture. I'm not going to deny that. And we may well wonder why is it there I want to skip us through the four sections because if you look at these chapters and you have your Bible open, you'll see that there are actually four stories. Um, The first story and the last one which were read for us are actually one and then there's these two little bits in the middle. So let's have a quick look at the story. Um, Jonathan has just finished uh, embracing his great friend at the end of chapter 20 who would be king and he's uh, passed his allegiance, Jonathan, Saul's son, uh, has passed his allegiance to David, uh, his friendship and his covenant love. But the scene is set that Jonathan's father, King Saul, has one mission in life and that is to destroy David and preserve his own dynasty. That's where uh, today starts. We're in North Jerusalem. I always like to know where I am. We're in the northern suburbs of Jerusalem and David is on the run. It says he fled in verse 10 and he's desperate. And we perceive the kind of corrosiveness of desperation. It kind of corrodes us. And think of the decisions that you've made uh, when you've been desperate as we look at the decisions, some of the decisions David makes here. It makes the text of scripture so raw, so alive uh, in, in its awfulness and its horror. David runs to this place called Nob, which as I say is really north Jerusalem, which is where the priests of the Lord reside. Ahimelech is the head of the priests. And he's wary and worried. Obviously, there's a murmur around uh, Israel that uh, anything to do with David is on the nose. 
And desperation kind of has a smell to it, doesn't it? When a person is truly desperate. And Ahimelech says, why are you here and why are you here alone? David spins this pretty ridiculous yarn, really. And it involves a king and haste and men and cloak and dagger. One commentator put it like this, this early section, that David sounds like a plumber asking a customer if he has any pipe wrenches he can borrow. Would that happen, Paul? No. No. The bottom line is from David, I need food and I need a sword. Can you help? We discover that there's this stuff called the bread of the presence, which you can read about in Leviticus chapter 24. Basically, they used to bake bread every day, fresh hot bread, and put it to the side of the altar to remind Israel of the provision of God. It's a beautiful picture. Then the next day, that would be made available for the priests to eat and new hot bread would be placed by the altar. Ahimelech gives David the bread of the presence to eat, uh, some loaves, and David takes it away. And Ahimelech gives him the only weapon in the place, which is wrapped up in a priestly garment, an ephod of some sort. It says behind the ephod, which means it's wrapped in the ephod. A priestly garment of decision-making, which is interesting. It was the garment that they used to use Uh, To do the ummon and the thummon, don't worry about that, it was stones. They used to basically toss the coin with the ephod and the ephod had the stones in it. Crazy, eh? That's what the sword's wrapped in. David gets the sword and heads off on his way. But there's a presence, a malevolent presence in the story. Doeg. Doeg the Edomite. We could talk about the Edomites, but we won't. Foreigners. Think foreigners in a bad way. Doeg's there because he's Saul's chief shepherd and he's gone to do some religious business. About the only time that God's name gets mentioned in these two chapters pertains to people who are on religious business that will ultimately seek to harm Israel. So just because God's getting a mention doesn't mean that good news is afoot. Now, we skip the next bit in the reading, but if you look at it in your Bible, David now heads from north Jerusalem south, past his own hometown, 20 minutes in the car south of Jerusalem, past Bethlehem, past Hebron, where Abraham came from. Then he does a swing to the right, heading south, and he goes to a place called Gath. Now, can anyone who remember who came from Gath? Goliath. Hey guys, have you seen my sword lately? This is insanity, writ large. He goes to Achish, the king of Gath, with Goliath's sword, their great champion, who he has slaughtered. And then the Philistines have been routed by the army of Israel. Now, why he did that is anyone's guess. Your guess is as good as mine. But in my mind, desperate people do pretty crazy things. Desperate people turn up in Geelong with smashed up furniture, nowhere to live and two kids and a wife who doesn't know why she's there. 
That's what desperate people do. And some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about. Achish, the, the, the king of Gath, seems confused, but his advisors don't. They turn up like a bunch of cops in a Bruce Willis movie. You know, thousands of them. They're useless, mostly the cops, but, you know, they turn up by the thousands. And David panics, utterly reasonable under the circumstances. He feigns insanity. And for some reason, Achish says, look, I don't want a madman here. Just just get him out of my sight. I've got enough. In fact, basically what he says is, haven't I got enough mad people here without another one? <laughs> and so David escapes. He then goes down. Can you press a button for me, Jenny? He then goes down to basically this. This is the hill country south of Jerusalem, not too far from Bethlehem. And he goes and collects his family If he's dead meat, his family will be next. That's the way it worked. If ever you've seen the Godfather movies, Don Corleone's family in the first Godfather movie, once uh, he becomes an enemy of the mafia in Sicily, bang, 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 right down to Don Corleone, who's only a cute little boy who they're trying to kill. And we see, because in Godfather, by Godfather 2 and 3, we can see why that would have been a pretty good idea if you were the enemy of the Colleones. And that's what's going on here. It's just like the mafia in Sicily. David, though, collects his family. He's also become a talisman for the disaffected. So he's gathering the disaffected. They call them those in debt, those desperate, and those who are discontent. They're the three lots he gathers. So that's story one, Achish, story two, Gath. Now he's gathered his family and story three, he heads for Mizpah. Mizpah is where the Moabites come. So he's gone back up the Jordan Valley, quite a long way, really into today what would be Jordan. And Mizpah is up there to the king of the Moabites. Now, why would he have gone there, for goodness sake? In another place in the Old Testament, there is one of the most beautiful books of the whole Old Testament. It's about women. It's about a woman named Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. David's great, 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 or great, great. Some of you textual scholars check it out. I think it's his great-grandmother was a Moabitess. Basically, in desperation, he's gone and saying... Hey, we're blood. Do you think you could help us out? Because we helped you out. When Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, and Ruth's other sister were in desperate straits, they came south into Israel and they found a kinsman redeemer. It's a moving story named Boaz. And Ruth was essentially saved and became one of those in the lineage of the great kings of Israel because someone helped her out. And here's David saying, hey, do you think you could just help me out? He is helped out, but only for a time. How do we know only for a time? Because this leads to the next little intriguing bit. It's only two or three lines in your Bible. But a prophet appears whose name is Gad. 
Gad. While they're in Mizpah with the Moabites, a prophet named Gad appears out of nowhere and prophesies to David that he should not stay there too long. He should return to Judah, which he does. So that story, one, Ahish, two, Gath, three, Mizpah. Then we're back in Jerusalem in the northern suburbs and King Saul hears about where David might be. And he's seated and he gathers all the men of his court around him and hurls a torrent of abuse and accusation over them. His loyal followers, he accuses and, and, and speaks demeaningly to and of, as well as Jonathan, his son, who he um, accuses of treachery. None of you, he says, you know, none of you care about me. That's what he says. None of you care about me. Now, this is one person's chance. Because the loyal ones don't care about me, here's the chance for the truly disloyal one to speak up. Doeg the Edomite pops up and says, I have good news for you, sire. Very good news. And he dumps Ahimelech right in it. Ahimelech the innocent. And Saul accuses Ahimelech of of, of, uh, conspiracy and rebellion and treachery in verse 13 of chapter 2. And Ahimelech presents a beautiful reasoned defence, not only of himself but of David. And we get this picture, this snapshot of David. David the loyal. David the respected. David, part of your family. David, the captain of your bodyguard, no less. David, the godly one who repeatedly comes to me and I help him and it's never caused any problem before. I know nothing about these accusations that you're accusing me and him of. It has nothing to do with me. But Saul's condition is such that all he has is a rationality and raw power. And he says to Ahimelech, you deserve to die. But he doesn't. And he commands his loyal ones, kill the priests, and they won't do it. Ah, but Doeg, he'll help out. And he and the other shepherds of Saul's sheep slaughter Ahimelech and 85 of his priests and their families, except for Ahimelech's son, Abiathar. And we see this glimmer of hope in but, but in verse 20, David says to Abiathar, come to my house, you'll be safe with me. Two awful chapters, really, of desperation and panic. 
But you know, just a glimpse, you only need a glimpse of the king, the king of kings, to change everything in your life. Just a glimpse of the king. We had nowhere to live. Nowhere. And no money either, by the way. I was the epitome uh, of the desperate husband um, who'd done a pretty bad job of managing what would seem to most people some pretty basic things in life. But there was someone in the community where we lived who had put me on to a businessman in Melbourne. And that businessman rang me. He said, have you found anywhere to live? I said, no, there's a place uh, in East Melbourne, right near Captain Cook's Cottage, actually, and right next door to the Archbishop. There's a place there, but I've been told someone else is really interested in it. And he said to me, ring them up, get over there and grab that house now. Okay. So I grabbed the house. Gad the prophet, there was a voice crying in the wilderness. A voice that didn't really seem to David to be saying very much. Just leave Mizpah and head back to Judah. But there was a voice. When we're desperate, and usually when we look back, we, hear, we see glimmers. And here's a prophetic voice. A prophetic voice. So uh, we grabbed the house. Um, That particular guy gave me a job. (laughs) Two days a week. And um, I distinctly remember him coming to me one day and he said, "Uh, I know you're only here two days a week, Mel, but he said, and I really don't know what you do. Apart, I was a storeman in his factory. I was a store guy. I moved the boxes around. He said, I really don't know what you do, but he said, don't worry about your job. He said, just keep doing whatever it is you do. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, all I'll say is that the days you're here, the place is a different place. So I guess I was doing what I just do as a job here and everywhere else because whatever my job is, I always turn into the same thing. But just keep doing what you're doing. There was a prophet. There was provision. Have a look at what happens here. Ahimelech gives him the bread of the presence, no less. And Jesus refers to this special bread of the presence when he's walking across a field picking grain on the Sabbath and they're having a go at him. He said, didn't, didn't Ahimelech even feed David with the holy bread? Provision of God. Jesus points to the provision of God. Now, most of us want a million bucks at least couple of houses and the whole red carpet rolled out when we come to provision. But God says, did you eat yesterday? Will you eat today? The provision of the Lord is enough. I distinctly remember thinking, he also gave us a car. We had a car, a job and a house. And I remember Cheryl and I at various times in this, at this time in our lives looking at each other and we were still pretty desperate but we were thankful. We were thankful. And that's the third thing that we see. David, 
authors no less than two psalms specifically about his experience in Gath with Goliath's sword and feigning insanity. Psalm 34 and 56 are specifically about this. One is a psalm that is quite lamenting, but God, but God. It's lamentable, but God. The other one is a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. Never forget that God's got your back is what the psalm is about. So it's out of desperation that psalms get written. And we see psalms being written here, psalms of hope and joy. But it's usually looking back, not at the time. And I remember Cheryl and I, we had provision, we'd had a prophet, and we had praise. One of the things, I can't quite line up uh, with our story, but maybe I can. Before we'd done any of the things that we'd done in ministry, like with you, as Anglicans, um, it just so happened that that house in East Melbourne, near Captain Cook's Cottage, um, was right next door to the Archbishop of Melbourne. That's pretty weird, isn't it? And the Archbishop had a chaplain, and his name was Geoffrey. And Geoffrey was high, liberal, Anglo-Catholic. Now, if you don't know what that means, it just means he was nothing like me, and most people like that would have nothing to do with me. But I remember Geoffrey hanging over the fence and going, Hi! We had a few chats in the street. He loaned me a few books and he said to me, You know, I think you'd be a good Anglican minister. I said, Geoffrey... I'm a Baptist. Geoffrey said, you know, Mel, we need more Baptists in the Anglican church. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for the providence of that prophet saying, get that house next door to where Geoffrey lived who did everything in his power to make sure I got ordained as an Anglican minister. And here I am today. So the fourth thing we see here is the providence of God at work. It's at work in the life of David when he goes to Mizpah and says, hey, we're family. How could Ruth and Naomi, a hundred years before, have known that their whole experience coming out and becoming uh, being, being served by Boaz and kinsmen redeemers could have served the next anointed king a hundred years later as he sought the providential provision of God back in Mizpah. I don't like talking about us very much, but that was just struck me. Can I encourage you this morning that out of these awful chapters we see the hovering God. And if he's hovering in my life, he's hovering in your life. And he's hovering in your life now. In Gethsemane on that night, 
back in Jerusalem, in the olive grove that looks back at the temple. Nothing good was happening for Jesus. His friendships were collapsing. Distress and trouble loomed everywhere. He was overwhelmed with sorrow, the scripture says. But the hovering of God, the foundation was being laid for resurrection and life. So as you look out from your circumstance today, whatever it is, Lord, I pray for you that a glimpse of the divine king who changes everything will so fill you and encourage you this morning that you'll know that you're in a great family from whose love in God you can never be separated. Amen. Lord, I do pray for people this morning as uh, Cheryl comes to play. Lord, I know, I know because I know you. I know some of you are desperate today. As we think about provision and praise and providence and prophecy. Lord, for those who desperately need you, who are making crazy decisions perhaps like David was, that's just all part of desperation. But Lord, for any of us today, Uh, come to us, fill us anew, reveal yourself to us and lift us up. And Lord, for those of us today that know nothing of anxiety, nothing of desperation, that everything's just going fine, (laughs) Father, as we share in these COVID times with each other, just help us to be so sensitive that if we're going fine, not everyone is. Lord, open our ears to be that provision, that praise, that providence, that prophet, to lift one another up, to bless one another, to be true family under you, Lord Jesus. Amen.